bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these big signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 25th, 2014. I'll start this week's podcast with the latest on tax center legislation, as well as a request from Treasury and the IRS for suggestions on tax issues that they should address in 2014 and 15. In our long-commencing tax credit segment, I begin by discussing an audit of New Mexico's management of the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Exchange Program funds, as well as a discussion of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's plan for updating its definition of rural. In this week's New Markets Tax Credit section, I discuss a call by Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio to extend the New Market Tax Credit program, as well as set aside funds specifically for communities affected by manufacturing job losses. I'll also discuss a letter about the New Market Tax Credit program application process that the New Markets Tax Credit Working Group sent to the CDFI fund. In our historic tax credit section, I share information about a Mississippi bill that would have extended the state's historic tax credit program, as well as an Indiana bill that asked a state commission to compare the existing tax credit program to a capital grant program. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit News, I share a letter from 28 senators that asks for the transition rule for the investment tax credit, namely the 30% investment tax credit, to be included in any tax extenders legislation. I also discuss an Iowa bill that would increase the amount of tax credits that projects can receive. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, I begin with an update on the tax extenders package. Senator Ron Wyden's office said that the Senate Finance Committee plans to take up tax extender legislation in early April. This means there could be a committee vote on legislation as early as next week. The Hill reported a Finance Committee spokesperson as saying that the panel is on track for an early April vote. But, I should add, no formal date had been set. An aide to the committee told Bloomberg that the committee will probably vote on the tax extenders next week. That's the week of March 31st. Now, the committee could vote to extend about 55 tax incentives that expired last December 31st. Those include, those extenders include, the New Market Tax Credit, the Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit, as well as the 9% low-income housing tax credit floor. If all the expired provisions were extended, it would cost about approximately $50 billion a year. The committee aid added that the panel hasn't decided if it will extend the tax incentives through the end of this year or through 2015. Several tax incentive programs have received support from both sides of the aisle of late. Senators Mark Udall and Charles Grassley, along with 24 other senators, sent a letter in support of extending renewable energy production and investment tax credits to the committee on Friday. And later in today's podcast, I'll discuss a letter calling for any tax extenders package to include a change to the transition rule for the 30% investment tax credit for solar energy. I'll also cover a recent event at which Senator Sherrod Brown 
praised the new market tax credit and urged Congress to extend the program. The Senate Finance Committee spokesperson said that no decision had been made on the actual content of the bill. Ranking member Orrin Hatch's office said that he would like a committee markup of any legislation before it is presented to the full Senate. We're also hearing that the House Ways and Means Committee may be considering some sort of tax extender package and that such information about their consideration could be released later this week. So stay tuned. I'll be following this story, and I'll bring you updates in future podcasts and via Twitter. In other news, the IRS has released a suggested list of priorities for 2014 and 2015. This is Priorities for Guidance. The IRS sets priority guidance plans each year and updates them on a quarterly basis. The 2014-2015 Priority Guidance Plan will identify guidance projects that the Treasury and the IRS will address between July 1, 2014 and June 30, 2015. The agency said that its priorities will include a number of issues. However, of most note to our listeners, they're willing to include suggestions from the public. Treasury asked that taxpayers briefly describe the recommended guidance and explain the need for the guidance in their request. Taxpayers may also include suggestions for how the issue should be resolved. And taxpayers should rank their suggestions in order of importance. Now, Treasury will consider several issues when setting their priorities. One, whether the guidance resolves issues relevant to many taxpayers. Two, if the guidance promotes sound tax administration. Three, if the guidance can be drafted in a manner that will be easy to understand and apply. Four, if the guidance involves regulations that are outmoded, ineffective, insufficient, or excessively burdensome, and that should be modified, streamlined, expanded, or repealed. Five, if the IRS can administer the guidance on a uniform basis. And six, if the recommended guidance reduces controversy and lessens the burden on taxpayers and or the IRS. Comments are due to the IRS and Treasury by May 1, 2014. Now I should note, which won't come as a surprise to our regular listeners, the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit and the New Market Tax Credit Working Groups will be submitting recommendations for guidance in certain key areas. And if you have suggestions, please send them to cpas at novaco.com. And if you'd like to review the notice, which is notice 2014-18, you can find a copy at www.novaco.com. In low-income housing tax credit news, I'd like to share the results of an audit of New Mexico's compliance with the Section 1602 Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Exchange Program. As you may recall, the Section 1602 program was part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009. In 2009 and 2010, designated state housing agencies could exchange a portion of their 2009 low-income housing tax credit allocations for grants. Those grants were intended to spur the development of affordable housing during the height of the recession, when investor equity was harder to come by. In New Mexico, the program was managed by the New Mexico Mortgage Finance Authority. The Treasury's Office of the Inspector General released an audit of the agency's management of the program earlier this month. The audit found that the Mortgage Finance Authority complied with the terms and conditions of its Section 1602 program award. More specifically, the audit found that the Mortgage Finance Authority met the requirements for receiving its Section 1602 program grant, 
for subawarding those funds properly to low-income housing developments and in establishing a process for monitoring the long-term viability of those developments and their compliance with the Section 1602 program requirements. MFA met the applicable requirements for receiving nearly $48 million in 1602 program awards. The awards, by the way, helped to restart six developments in New Mexico that were stalled due to the effects of the Great Recession on the low-income housing tax credit equity markets. And as a result, 372 housing units were created. In addition, 367 of those units were set aside as low-income housing for qualifying residents throughout the state. All of these developments were placed in service between October 2010 and November 2011. To read a copy of the audit report, go to www.taxcredithousing.com. For those of you with questions, please contact my partner, Bill Letzinger, in our Long Beach, California office. He can be reached at 562-256-2340. In other low-income housing tax credit news, I have information for owners of properties located in rural areas. The U.S. Department of Agriculture recently issued a document to help with the transition to the definition of rural included in the 2014 Farm Bill. As regular listeners may know, there has been some debate about what should count as rural now that the 2010 census has been completed. Some have argued for preserving all areas that were considered rural on September 30, 2013. This list included 900 areas that had met the definition of rural during the 1990 and 2000 censuses but did not meet the definition of rural during the 2010 census. Well, the Farm Bill has generally laid this issue to rest. It grandfathered in many of the areas that otherwise would have lost their status. It didn't, however, preserve all areas. So the USDA came up with a two-phase implementation process to transition to the new definition of rural areas. The first phase will be implemented on May 6th, and the second phase will be implemented on October 1st. The eligibility rules, though, are a bit complicated, so I won't be able to go into them here. But you may want to review the USDA document if you have properties located in rural areas. You can find a copy of that document online at www.taxcredithousing.com. Jim Kroger, a part of mine in our San Francisco office, can also answer any specific questions that you may have. You can reach Jim at jim.kroger, K-R-O-G-E-R, at novaco.com. For low-income housing tax credit developers, the major issue is the loss of the use of HUD's national non-metro median income for purpose of determining income-qualifying tenants. New properties being developed in areas that are no longer considered rural will only be able to use the applicable income limits for the county they won't be able to use HUD's national non-metro median income. For existing properties, though, the effect is less clear. There's no hold harmless provision for the national non-metro median income limit standard, so properties may need to lower their rent limits in order to meet the new requirements. The lower income limits could make it more difficult for developers to rent vacant units as fewer people will be income qualified for purpose of occupying the units. We'll be following the the transition to this new rule closely and we'll bring you relevant updates in future podcasts. In new market tax credit news, I have an update on a bill that that we've been tracking for the past couple of months. 
Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio held a news conference call to talk about making struggling manufacturing communities eligible for the new market tax credit. If passed, this bill would reauthorize the new market tax credit for three years. It would increase the annual allocation from $3.5 billion to $6 billion. That $6 billion includes $1 billion set aside for communities affected by factory job losses and closures. Senator Brown said that the manufacturing industry is playing a big part in helping the national economy recover from the recession. Past new market tax credit manufacturing projects have leveraged more than $2.50 of private investment for every tax credit dollar. He said the bill would attract more investments and create more high-paying manufacturing jobs. And while we're on the topic of manufacturing jobs, I should note, President Obama included a proposal for a new manufacturing communities tax credit in his fiscal year 2015 budget. It specifically targets communities affected by military base or factory closures. The program would provide about $2 billion in annual credits for qualified investments approved in each of three years, from 2015 through 2017. You can find a copy of the President's budget and Senator Brown's Manufacturing Communities Investment Act at www.newmarketscredits.com. Lastly, in New Market Tax Credit News, the NMTC Working Group submitted a comment letter about their New Market Tax Credit allocation application to the CDFI Fund this month. The NMTC Working Group submitted its comments in response to a request from the CDFI Fund. I'll share with you a few of the letter's main points. It called for greater clarity on how the CDFI Fund ranks its priorities and how it defines terms like equity equivalent and capital at risk. It also suggested eliminating the requirement that applicants gather investor commitment letters for the application. The working group called the requirement an excessive burden on applicants and investors. The past years have shown that investor appetite for new market tax credits far exceeds the amount available. As such, there's little need to prove investor interest as part of the application process. Another recommendation was aimed at helping lower transaction costs. The CDFI fund could issue guidance providing that an applicant won't be penalized for dividing its allocation among fewer investments. Such guidance could reverse the trend of multi-CDE transactions that can result in higher transaction costs. The working group urged the CDFI fund to make changes to the application well in advance of any future notice of allocation availability. This would help prevent costly last-minute changes for applicants. You can find a copy of the letter at www.newmarketscredits.com. Just go to the Resources tab and click on NMTC Working Group. And in case you're not familiar with the NMTC Working Group, it works to resolve technical, regulatory, and administrative new market tax credit issues to make the program even more efficient and effective. The group includes more than 50 community development entities, consultants, investors, and lawyers. If you're not yet a member, I encourage you to find out more about joining the New Market Task Credit Working Group. Just go to the NMCC Working Group webpage or call my partner, Brad Elphick, in our Atlanta, Georgia office. In historic tax credit news, a bill that would have extended the deadline for projects to qualify for the Mississippi State Historic Tax Credit has died in the Senate Finance Committee. As such, the tax credit is set to expire at the end of this year. 
The lack of an extension means that projects must be certified by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History before December 31, 2014. If the bill had passed, it would have extended the deadline until the end of 2029. The bill's death surprised many, as it had passed the House unanimously in February. Yet, it died in the Senate Finance Committee on March 4th. According to the Clarion Ledger newspaper, lawmakers would need to propose what's called a suspension resolution to resurrect the bill. And to do that would take three days' notice and a two-thirds vote in each house. That's seen as quite a challenge. So where does this leave developers who are relying on the state credit to make their projects feasible? Most likely, they'll have to scramble to meet the deadline at the end of December. After the bill died in committee, an attorney who works with the program released a white paper citing the success of the program. Matthew McLaughlin, a partner at the Jackson, Mississippi office of corporate law firm Balch and Bingham, called the Mississippi State Credit one of the most important incentives to revitalize the state's urban and rural communities. McLaughlin cited data from a 2013 report by the Center for Urban Policy Research at Rutgers University. That report noted that between 2002 and 2012, approximately $170 million was invested in Mississippi through the federal and state historic tax credit programs. These investments created 3,000 program-related jobs in the state, which contributed to the state and local tax bases. You can review House Bill 1436, as well as the white paper, at www.historictaxcredits.com. If you have any questions, please contact my partner Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office at 216-298-9000. In other historic tax credit news, Indiana's Commission on State Tax and Finance Policy will study the effectiveness of the state's historic tax credit program as compared to that of a grant program. The study is required by legislation that the governor signed on March 13th. The legislation does not, let me say that again, the legislation does not affect the current historic tax credit program. It simply calls for the commission to study the existing program and potential grant-based alternatives. This act is effective on July 1, 2014, and the commission is required to submit its findings and recommendations to the Legislative Council before November 1, 2014. To read Act Number 1215, go to www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you have any questions about the Act, I encourage you to contact my partner, Annette Stevenson, in our Cleveland, Ohio office. She can be reached at 216-239-5510. In renewable energy news, I want to tell you about some additional support for changing the way in which the investment tax credit, namely the 30% tax credit, would apply to projects started in the year 2016. Earlier this month, a group of 28 senators sent a letter to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid and Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden. The letter supports a bill that would change the transition rule for the 30% investment tax credit such that projects that began construction on or before December 31, 2016 would qualify for the higher 30% credit percentage. The letter said that many utility-scale solar projects are already unable to use the tax credit because utility-scale projects can take four to six years to complete. Investors are hesitant to invest billions of dollars into projects that might not be placed in service before the end of 2016. And under current law, if they're not placed in service before the end of 2016, 
they'd be ineligible for the higher 30% credit rate. The lawmakers said they want to see the bill, Senate Bill 2003, included in any tax extenders package. You can find a copy of the letter at www.energytaxcredits.com. There, you'll also find the bill text of Senate Bill 2003, also known as the Renewable Energy Parity Act of 2014. If you have questions about the investment tax credit or how to get your development qualified, please contact my partner, Tony Grapponi, in our Boston office. Tony can be reached at 617-330-1920. Now, I'd like to discuss legislation that would increase the annual and project caps for Iowa's solar energy system tax credit. The program has two components, residential and commercial. It provides residential projects with state tax credits equal to 50% of the amount of federal residential energy-efficient property tax credits. It provides commercial projects with state tax credits equal to 50% of the investment tax credits that the projects qualify for. The bill would increase individual project caps to $5,000 for residential projects and $20,000 for commercial projects and increase the credit percentages to 60%. It also proposes to raise the overall annual cap to $4.5 million per year. If passed into law, the bill would apply retroactively as of January 1, 2014. At the time of this recording, Iowa's Senate Ways and Means Committee had approved the bill. And if approved by the full Senate, the bill would then go to the House for a vote. We'll update you on the progress of this bill when more information becomes available. If you'd like to read the bill, which is called SF2340, go to www.energytaxcredits.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.